covering all aspects of Milwaukee Brewers baseball. It's time for Brewers Extra Innings, the podcast. Here is your host, Matt Pauley. It is time for another edition of Brewers Extra Innings, the podcast powered by WTMJ Mobile. My name is Matt Pauley. Great to have you with us as we are back with you. Took last week off for the Thanksgiving holiday, but we are back. We'll do a few weeks worth of podcast. We'll probably take a couple weeks off right around uh, the holidays, Christmas, and uh, New Year's. And then uh, we'll get back at it uh, in January, uh, full bore ahead. And hopefully, hopefully at some point in time, we will actually have some baseball on-field-related talk for you as right now a lockout is officially underway. Uh, I do say this, at this point in time, this work stoppage, because it is by definition a work stoppage, at this point... It is more of a footnote more than anything else because uh, if if they don't miss any regular season games, if spring training gets started, well, then you barely even remember the fact that there was technically an off-season work stoppage in baseball. But we don't know what the future holds. So as it sits right now, we can sit here and say that baseball indeed is in a work stoppage, which... Uh, it's not great. Some of the uh, some of the uh, rhetoric and narratives that we have seen, uh, really from each side of this whole thing, it's just not a great place for baseball here at the moment. And uh, I I believe this. And we'll, we'll I'm I'm kind of limited this week in what I'm going to say in terms of the work stoppage and the labor and, and the lockout because we're going to be talking about this a lot over the next few weeks. I'm going to say something here, which I really do believe. I absolutely 100% believe that each side has it as a priority to be playing baseball when opening day is scheduled. Now, they also have other priorities, and those other priorities are, for the most part, in direct opposition with each other. But I do think the one area that players and owners can at least agree upon is that they don't want to miss any regular season games. So if you are looking for optimism, if you are looking for something to potentially be excited about or a reason to believe that this work stoppage and this lockout uh, will not extend into what would be the regular season, well then the, the, the thing to hold on to is the belief that both players and owners don't ha- they very much want to have the season starting on time. So that's what I would say this week, and we'll just see where things go here moving uh, moving forward. It seems like they kind of pressed the pause button on the negotiations. They they got together for a very small amount of time, and then the lockout started, and there were statements and press conferences from each side, and it's been relatively quiet since then, and they may just need a moment to kind of take a breath. I... I I just don't want it to be mean-spirited, if that... And maybe I'm coming from a really utopian place when I say that. I just don't want it to be... I want the two sides to find a way to have a spirit of working together. And maybe that's pie in the sky. Probably is pie in the sky. Uh, when it comes to the relationship between players and owners and the way things have gone. And uh, we've been... We've been barreling down this path for a while, unfortunately, and it's even connected to the negotiations that took place prior to the 60-game shortened season uh, in the pandemic year. 
Uh, they've just got a lot of things to figure out. They've got a lot, a lot, a lot of things to figure out, and uh, we will certainly discuss that more in uh, future uh, future podcasts. This week, uh, a conversation with Kyle Loebner coming up. Always enjoy being able to talk with uh, Kyle. Uh, he writes weekly for the Shepherd Express, part of the uh, content team uh, with the Timber Rattlers as well. Prior to the lockout, the Brewers do make a move. They send away Jackie Bradley Jr., so they get out from underneath his contract. And clearly, he had just a miserable season this past year. I'm a, you've heard me talk about it a million times over. I'm a big believer in track record. And Jackie Bradley Jr. is not a great offensive player, but he is, he is clearly, he is clearly better uh, than what he was this past year with the Brewers. So, I say this with him going back to the Red Sox, but I would have said it if he would have remained uh, with the Brewers as well. He's going to have a bounce back season. He absolutely is. I I don't know how much of a bounce back, but he is not going to have a repeat of what he had this past year with the Brewers. And even if he has a really nice offensive season, that doesn't make this a bad move. You You don't know how much of his struggles with Milwaukee were connected to him being with the Brewers, whether it was a ballpark thing, whether it was a league thing. You know, there sometimes there are guys who are just more comfortable in the American League or the National League. Maybe he's one of those guys. I don't know. Uh, but I, I expect him to go back to Boston and for his numbers to have some type of pretty major rebound. But the Brewers do get somebody back in Hunter Renfro. And the Brewers had to uh, get rid of two prospects who they thought very highly of in, in making this uh, in making this move. Alex Manellis, who was a local product, Oak Creek kid. And then uh, shortstop David Hamilton, who, uh, as mentioned, we'll have Kyle Loebner on. And I've over, as I'm recording this right now, I can tell you I've already recorded the conversation with Kyle. And uh, he'll tell you, I'm not trying to steal his content before you hear the interview, He'll tell you the disappointment that Hamilton is no longer in the organization and that of the four players involved in this trade, there is a possibility that Hamilton may end up being the best of all of them, has the potential to be a really, really special player. Sometimes that is the cost of doing business. You want to set yourself up. You want to get out from under the contract of JBJ. You don't want to have that money, that percentage of your payroll committed to a guy that you're not sure what his offensive profile is going to look like for the upcoming season well to do that and to acquire a guy who can can, you know can contribute in a pretty big way at the big league level in hunter renfro um there's a cost to doing that and getting out from underneath the salary like all the, the cost is the prospect capital that goes along with that i'll also say this like kyle and i one of the interesting aspects of our conversation is where Renfro is going to hit because he views Renfro as a like a, a six or seven hitter, a guy that's got power but can kind of be that that last chance through some of your big bats to, to clear it. I look at a guy who can hit 30-plus home runs, and I want him maybe a little bit higher in the order. Now, the point that Kyle's going to make, and it is completely valid, is historically Renfro's not much of an on-base guy. He strikes out, doesn't get on base. There's an all-or-nothing aspect to what he does, and um, that can that can be a rally killer. Do you want that right in the middle of the order? 
I just I see a team that needs to score more runs consistently, and there is a very good chance that Hunter Renfro is going to be the home run leader for the Brewers this upcoming season. And I am hopeful that if he's going to be the home run leader, he is given every opportunity to have as many players on base as possible uh, when when he's at the plate. So those are those are the fun conversations we will have much more of uh, once baseball resumes. Right once the once the lockout, once the work stoppage comes to an end, and uh, it will we'll see what it looks like. I'll be honest with you, we'll see what it looks like on this podcast. In many ways, unfortunately, this kind of reminds me of what we did on this podcast during the pandemic because there was no baseball and there was not a whole lot to talk about and we're going to kind of be in that place so uh you know we'll, we'll see where things go what kind of fun conversation if you've got any thoughts on it by the way and i remember doing this uh during the pandemic and i heard from some of you and i enjoyed it uh if you've got thoughts on things that you would like to hear in this podcast on a weekly basis especially during this period where the work stoppage is officially uh going on let me know, and uh, yeah, we'll see. Uh, we'll see what we can work on. But feel free to tweet at me at Matt Pauly on air, and uh, that's probably the best way to uh, get in contact. All right, uh, let's get to it. Uh, this week's featured conversation is with Kyle Lopner. After every Brewers game, signing an announcement, bloggers and podcasters hit the web to give their take. Now we bring them all together. It's the Social Media Roundtable, and it starts now. Brewers Extra Innings, the podcast, is powered by WTMJ Mobile. Very happy to welcome back onto the podcast a guy who uh, covers the Brewers for uh, the Shepherd Express, Milwaukee Record, also uh, does work uh, with the Timber Rattlers. He is all over the place. You can follow him on Twitter at ByKyleLobner, B-Y-K-Y-L-E-L-O-B-N-E-R. As you might expect, it is Kyle Loebner joining us here on the program. Kyle, thanks so much for taking some time with us. How are you? I'm doing all right. How are you? I am good. Um, it's an interesting week, and obviously we'll touch on uh, really two different things here uh, between uh, a different type of deadline deal that ends up getting made and then obviously the labor situation uh, that's going on in baseball as well. But we'll start with the deal that the uh, the Brewers make as they're able to uh, dish off Jackie Bradley Jr. They're able to bring in a guy who, uh, from a profile standpoint, you would uh, certainly think uh, could hit a whole bunch of home runs at American Family Field and Hunter Renfro. Uh, clearly, the Brewers had to give up some prospect capital, make this deal work. But what was your overall uh, thought process and thoughts on uh, the deal that David Stearns and Matt Arnold were able to pull off just prior to the baseball work stoppage? Well, I mean, I was a little bit surprised. I think a, a lot of folks were to see a deal happen, you know, this this briefly before the deadline, uh, before the lockout went into play. I was, you know, in bed but watching TV and waiting for the, the deadline to become official and the lockout to go in before bed and saw the news. And it, it's, um, it's a little bittersweet, uh, I think, for Timber Rattlers fans specifically uh, because David Hamilton is one of the, the two prospects that is going to Boston in the deal. Um, and David was just a fantastic player as a timber rattler this year. Um, a, a really great combination of a guy who is a very good defensive infielder, uh, potentially could stick at shortstop, has absolute elite speed um, on a timber rattlers team that had a lot of guys that were very fast this year. Um, Hamilton was the best base dealer, um, a, a guy who can can really do a lot of things with that. Um, had shown some power. 
Um, and I think really has the potential to be a very good infielder for a long time. And I think might end up being the best player in this deal. Uh, so to see him go away uh, was a little bit disappointing, especially when it seems like um, the Brewers organization's kind of top priority was not having to uh, finish off the contract with Jackie Bradley Jr. Uh, but beyond that, um, you know, it, it's you know good for Jackie Bradley Jr. and for the Brewers getting him an opportunity to go back to a place where clearly he was comfortable, um, giving him an opportunity to kind of get his career back on track in a place where he has experienced success before. Um, and Hunter Renfro is a, a really intriguing piece for them. Yeah. Um, he's a guy who has a lot of swing and miss in his game, um, but has shown elite power. Uh, you know, and, and is coming off of a career year. And so certainly the, the Brewers are an organization that has demonstrated the ability to take guys in and put them in a position to succeed, um, giving them lots of opportunities to do the things they do well, kind of protecting them from some of the things they don't. Um, and Renfro is a guy who would be a, a really solid candidate for that, a, a guy who has shown elite power, um, but really probably needs to be put in situations to maximize his opportunity for success. I am uh, people who listen to me for a while know that I'm a I'm a track record guy, and you talked about him coming off a, a career year that he just had uh, in Boston with the 31 home runs. But that being said, he it's not like he's somebody who has not shown power in his career. He played uh, those four years in San Diego to open up his career, and from 2017 to 2019, he went 26, 20, uh, 26, 26, and 33 home runs. So even though he's coming off a career year, he also wasn't a complete flash in the pan. He is somebody that's got at least a little bit of a track record coming in. Oh, absolutely. When you're talking about power numbers, this is a guy who has put up some really big numbers. Uh, the troubling number in Hunter Renfro's game is that before this year with Boston, um, where he set a career high in this category, he was a guy with a 290 career on base percentage. Um, so he's a guy who's going to hit some home runs. And an American family feel he's going to hit probably some massive home runs. He might be the guy who hits the longest home run a brewer hits next season. Um, but he's also a guy who has a long history of struggling to get on base. Um, and so... Uh, Brewer fans, I think, maybe have seen a, a fair number of this type of player in recent years. Uh, guys who are kind of all-or-nothing sluggers, um, and the Brewers are going to have to find ways to put him in positions to succeed so that they're not you know, relying on a guy in the middle of the lineup kind of day in, day out that's going to struggle to get on base, um, except for the times when he hits home runs. And I don't say this to pat myself on the back. I just say to, to say that I was kind of expecting something along these lines. From the moment the season ended, I always looked at right field as being the spot where the Brewers could add a big bat. With all due respect to third base and to first base, for whatever reason, I thought right field. And you know, Avi Garcia did a nice job. I and mean, this is not to denigrate his performance with the team, but I felt like the team could get more, and I felt like. They needed more. Like you look at what they want from an offensive profile and a run scoring profile. It seemed like they needed one more really big bad. And we'll see if Renfro ends up being that or not. But it feels like, and where I was wrong was I thought it was going to take some pitching for them to get it. I thought they were going to have to give up some of their major league pitching. Instead, they give up some of their prospect capital that you've already referenced. But they go and they get a big power bat to put in the middle of the order. It feels like if. If Renfro does what you expect him to do, if Yelich can regain some form of who he was before, all of a sudden that Brewers offense could be exponentially better just based off if those two things happen. And I think you're absolutely right 
if Renfro turns into a middle-of-the-order hitter. Um, but I don't know that the Brewers are going to be super excited um, with a guy who is going to be 30 before opening day um, and has a 297 career on base percentage, you know, kind of in the middle of the order. I, I think his his gameplay is a little bit better probably further down in the lineup where he's kind of the, the last guy with an opportunity to get a crack at a big inning before you get to the, the bottom of the order. Um, you know, if he can build on what he had last year with Boston, um, build on a, a career year, learn to draw a walk a little more, and like I said, the Brewers will probably do a better job of maximizing his opportunities to kind of keep him out of trouble a little bit, then yeah, this could turn out to be a great deal for the Brewers. But Renfro has some work to do to be that guy um, that is kind of an everyday right fielder and middle-of-the-order hitter. So would you argue that for the Brewers' offense to still be its best self, they could probably still use another bat to provide a little more protection for Yelich, which it doesn't just it it doesn't completely feel like it's been there for him the last two years. Yeah, I, I don't think Renfro is that guy. Um, I, I think Renfro might be that guy sometimes, um, but I think if the Brewers are counting on Hunter Renfro to start, you know, 140 games this year, I think they might be disappointed with some of the things they see at times because, like I said, this is just a guy who has struggled almost all of his career, to consistently get on base. He's going to have his big moments, but if he is the bat that is behind Christian Yelich, I don't know if that's going to convince people to throw Christian Yelich strikes consistently. Yeah, you're probably right. Um, the the home runs, I, I'm just, I'm, I am curious, I guess my big question on him and where I'm optimistic about him is because you look at you look at his home run profile. The 31 he hit this year. The uh, the 33 he hit in in 2019. So you get rid of 2020, and all of a sudden that's that's back to back 30 plus home run years. I mean, it's not if he's given a fair amount of playing time, it's not out of the realm of possibility that he could be pushing 40 home runs playing in this ballpark. I would agree with that, but I think that's. You know, there's a reason why when you talk about the positives about Hunter Renfro, you keep coming back to home runs. Um, and when you talk about the challenges, you keep coming back to on-base percentage because there's, it's possible for him to be both. Yeah. Um, for him to be a guy who hits a lot of home runs, but also for him to be a guy that doesn't get on base consistently. Um, and, and the value of one kind of negates a little bit of the sting of the other. Um, but at the end of the day, it's still a, a bit of a challenge to put him as kind of a, a centerpiece in your lineup. I guess I would also look at the way the season ended. The Brewers really could have used in the postseason a little bit more pop the way Atlanta had. Uh, yes and no. I mean, yes, it, it would have been nice to have a little more power, but I think when you look at guys who were kind of in this profile, um, guys with you know significant power but a lot of swing and miss in their game, the Brewers have had that um, in, in recent years. This isn't a, a new thing to Milwaukee. You know, going all the way back to Adam Lind and Chris Carter, um, but up to Rowdy Telez and Daniel Vogelbach. I mean, that that's the kind of hitter we're talking about here. A, a guy who is going to swing hard, a guy who's going to make solid contact um, a portion of the time, um, but at the price of, you know, pitch selection that's going to lead to him struggling to get on base sometimes. I still think, I go back, you mentioned Chris Carter. It's still... Very few people talk about it. It's still one of the most amazing things that a guy can lead the National League in home runs and get non-tendered the next year. It was uh, I look like when I hear Chris Carter, that's always the first thing I think about a National League home run leader who ends up getting non-tendered. But it it it's a great uh, 
it augments your point because even for a guy who hit so many home runs all those years ago, he did not get on base enough that the Brewers valued him to give him a contract. And, and not to wander too far off on the tangent, I, I was a big critic of the team at the time they let Chris Carter go, and it turns out they were right. Uh, Chris Carter has not done much at all as a, a big leaguer since leaving the Brewers. Um, and, and so they were, they were correct on that one, and that's one where I was on the wrong side. All right, let's um... – yeah, let's one more baseball. I like. I, I hate talking about labor stuff, but we have to do it. But one, one more thing. It happened the last couple of weeks. We haven't. Uh, we missed the podcast this past week after the Thanksgiving weekend, so we haven't talked about it a whole lot. I just want to get your take uh, on Corbin Burns. He won the the Cy Young Award. Uh, a lot of discussion afterwards. It was actually it was really fun. Like Twitter, you know as well as anybody, Twitter can be a horrible place. But I thought that for the most part, the the discussions and the arguments and the conversations that were being had about Burns and what he did in dominating fashion but in less innings than than say Zach Wheeler. Like I thought those conversations were really interesting and fun. Like it was one of the few times that I really enjoyed social media because I, I can see both sides. Like I, I think Burns did deserve to win the Cy Young Award, but for the people out there who are going to value innings pitched over what you do in lesser innings, like I understand I at least understand the path that you take to get there. What was your kind of overall takeaway from uh, Burns winning the Cy Young and some of the uh, some of the response to it as well. You know, in a way, um, I was a, a little bit surprised by the, the way kind of the narrative built up around Corbin Burns because uh, this is not a season that would have netted a pitcher a Cy Young 10 years ago. You know, I, I think we've just changed the conversation about how we value pitching has changed. Um, and, and so I think that was one of the, the really interesting things to come out of this is that, you know, it, it would have been a decade ago, we would have been talking about uh, Urias from the Dodgers and his 20 wins um, as a likely Cy Young favorite. Um, and Zach Wheeler probably would have been up there. And Corbin Burns would have been a little further back because he didn't quite pitch enough. And I think it, it's good for the sport that we have learned a lot more about what makes pitchers valuable um, over the last decade. Uh, but I, I know, and I, I know from talking to, you know, my dad called when Corbin Burns won and really wanted to have a long conversation about why it wasn't Wheeler or Urias. Um, and, you know, I, I see from that conversation that it's still confusing for folks, but it's, it's interesting that we are starting to see now the, the writers also kind of trend in this new direction about what makes a pitcher valuable. Um, now, again, having covered Burns uh, when he was with the Timber Rattlers all the way back in his first pro season, having done multiple stories about him over the years, um, it was extremely exciting uh, here in Appleton to see Burns win the Cy Young, um, a guy that, that I think we're really proud of locally. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's a, a deserving season, a, a truly dominant performance, and, and one that belongs certainly among the greatest, if not the greatest, in Brewers franchise history. It would appear, just based off the rumblings that are out there, that baseball wants to see, see starting pitchers go deeper into games. Uh, one of the things that, one of those rules that has been tested that probably won't be part of this next collective bargaining agreement whenever it gets done, but maybe will be at some point. But one of those rules that's being tested is universal DH, but the DH only stays in the game as long as the starting pitcher is in there. The idea is to try to uh, incentivize teams to have starting pitchers go deeper into games. I only mention that because it's just, it's clear that one of the things 
things that Major League Baseball would like is for starting pitchers to go deeper into games. So with that, with the idea that that's something that maybe Major League Baseball wants, do you think we circle back around on this over the next five, ten years where maybe we do actually see something in baseball happen where they do find a way to incentivize and we start seeing starting pitchers go deeper into games where we're going to look at this Corbin Burns Cy Young Award and say, okay, that just happened at a really weird time in baseball where starting pitchers were not going deep into games? I think it's possible, but I think, you know, before you label Corbin Burns as a guy who was limited by, you know, short outings, I think it's important to remember that the biggest thing the limited Burns' innings to see them wasn't the fact that he pitched short outings. It was the fact that he only pitched every sixth day most of the year. Um, And so if you start to see starting pitchers go deeper into games, I think one of the lasting legacies of that is going to be that you're going to see more and more teams using their aces less and less often. Um, Because you're going to see teams go to a six-man rotation to get guys an extra day of rest to recover from that. And so I, I don't know what's better for baseball. You know, if the elite starting pitchers pitch more often but less, or if they go, you know, maybe seven innings but only every sixth day. Um, unless you really time it right, you may not see them if you buy tickets for a game. Um, certainly it's a challenge. Uh, and I think, you know, relief pitcher usage is a, a thing that I think a lot of folks would agree has made the game um, certainly drag on a little longer and perhaps a little less exciting. Um, seeing kind of the, the chain of anonymous fifth and sixth and seventh inning guys um, every day. Uh, but I think at the end of the day, I'm not entirely sure that there is a, a hard and fast rule that could be used to make sure you see the best pitchers more often. I, I don't know. I think at the end of the day, teams are going to value winning and they're going to value keeping their guys healthy more than they value kind of the aesthetic nature of the, the value of pitching someone like Corbin Burns more often. And really, um, for Brewers fans, I, I think Brewers fans would much rather win more often um, than have teams you know, kind of bend their, their approach to meet a certain aesthetic. Yeah, and he also spent some time on the COVID list. That's another area where he lost some innings, uh, too. So you're, you're right. I mean, he did. I, I was probably not completely fair in the way I asked that question because he is somebody who did. He had the ability to pitch deep into games, and he did uh, do that uh, certainly at, at a number of times during the course of the year. And he was always somebody who wanted to, to stay in games. That was something that I could say during a postgame show. I can't tell you how many times we were having the discussion about whether or not he was pulled uh, too early, and it was just uh, it, it was something that certainly uh, continued to to exist. I am curious, and you know, Craig Council talked about the fact that when they when they increased the roster by one guy, that really allowed them the opportunity to go to the six man rotation. Now they go to the six man rotation directly this year, coming off the sixty game season, to be able to help keep guys safe and healthy. But now that they've done that for a year and the success that they had, they still have the 26th roster spot. I do wonder if the Brewers and if other teams, and I think you alluded to this a little bit a moment ago, like does are, are we moving towards a point where more and more teams, if not a six-guy rotation, at least the six-day rotation where you use a sixth guy on in situations where you don't have an off day? I think some teams certainly will. Um, I think the Brewers demonstrated this year that it can be successful, but there's there's really two elements that play into it. One is that, yes, the, the roster spot that you mentioned makes it more feasible to do so, uh, but you still need to have the organizational depth to make that work. 
Um, you know, a big part of the reason the Brewers were able to do it this year is because they got big performances from guys like Eric Lauer, um, who, when he was coming out as the sixth guy in the rotation, was not a setback, you know, from the, the guys who were in front of him. Um, and so they had six guys who could go out there and take the ball and give them an opportunity to win every day. The decision to go to a six-man rotation would have been a different conversation, and a six-man rotation would have been significantly less popular if that sixth guy who was going out there was either a guy who was only going to throw an inning or two or a guy who had an ERA over six. You know, that, then it would look like you're punting every sixth day. Um, and so I, I don't know that you will see every team go to a six-man rotation because I don't know that every team has um, six guys who can put them in a position to win like this. Uh, but if you have the organizational depth and the good fortune to have pitchers who can do it, uh, the Brewers have clearly demonstrated that this provides an awful lot of value in terms of keeping your pitchers sharp, um, keeping them ready to go down the stretch, um, and keeping them healthy. Uh, and you know, that's a big part of the game. All right, let's do it. Let's get into the uh, the work stoppage. We it is technically a work stoppage that uh, if. If they don't miss any regular season games, then this is just going to be a footnote and nothing more than that for most people. But this labor negotiation between players and owners, it it was always ugly, but it was kind of ugly below the surface with the statements and the press conferences and everything that occur immediately following the lock, lockout, the, the ugliness of it and how far the two sides are off from each other becomes a lot more headline news. Like, I don't even know what to ask other than just kind of what's, what, what, where are you at? What are your thoughts right now as uh, there's currently a lockout and there's nothing technically going on in Major League Baseball? Yeah, I mean, as you mentioned, this has been bubbling for a long time. Um, I, I think, you know, there's been a long-standing narrative, uh, regardless of how true it is, it's been out there and it's been prevalent, that the players gave up way too easily um, four years ago before the last collective bargaining agreement um, and kind of set the stage for a really ugly discussion around this one um, because players are angry for a variety of reasons. Um, owners got away with a lot a few years ago, and so there's kind of a, a big shift needed, at least in the eyes of the players, to get back to even footing. Um, and so I, I think, you know, it's unfortunate, and I, I was holding out hope for the, you know, maybe 1% outcome that the day before the lockout went into place, the two sides would maybe sit down in a room and hammer something out because there is a lot of money on the table. Um, but with that said, it, it's not surprising um, that, that we've reached this point. I, I think uh, the players would tell you, or at least some of the players would tell you, that this discussion has been a long time coming um, and is at least in part a reaction to a conversation that should have happened four years ago and didn't. Uh, you know, I, I still think at the end of the day, uh, we're going to end up with something closer to a footnote in baseball history than a, a major storyline in baseball history this winter. I still think everyone is better off playing baseball than not playing baseball. Um, and so I think that once we get to you know February or March and we're getting to the point where spring training should have been going, I think you will see both sides kind of look at themselves and realize that they need to figure something out. Uh, but with that said, I, I think it might be a long couple months till we get there. Um, and, and I don't expect a resolution to this to happen, you know, certainly before the holidays um, and probably not before it has to. It always seemingly has been the players who have blinked first. The players have 
a bit of a war chest here, and they, it seems like they, they don't want to do the blinking. Is this the year where owners blink first? Or are, I mean, we've, we've heard reports that the owners have never, there's never been more solidarity amongst owners when it comes to labor negotiations. And they even, you know, they were throwing out things like not giving cost of living increases when it comes to pensions, which seems like a really weird thing to kind of start with. Like, it just, I guess my question is, is the, somebody's going to have to blink, even if the second blink comes a half second later. And I don't know which one of these sides is going to end up doing that because the players so badly don't want to do that. Yeah, it, it's going to be uh, it's going to be a real challenge for one of these sides to final to admit that they um, need to take a step towards the other because it, it doesn't seem like either is interested in doing it at all right now. Um, I I do think you know one of the challenges in past labor negotiations, and you've been in clubhouses more often than I have over the years, so you know this better than I do. Um, the veteran players in the clubhouses are almost always the leaders in clubhouses. They're almost always the people that guys defer to. Um, and veteran players, for the most part, have been extremely well served by the last few collective bargaining agreements. Um, and the, the younger guys have kind of gotten the short end of the stick. But when you see the rhetoric of a player like Max Scherzer, for example, who is a, a union leader, um, Max Scherzer has made his money for his career. Uh, Max Scherzer has made his money twice over. Um, and it would be understandable from a self-interest perspective if he went into these negotiations and served himself well and got a deal that worked for him and then got out of there. Uh, when you hear someone like Max Scherzer talk about the importance of making sure the next generation has it better than he did coming up, um, that really implies that the, the union is not as divided as they have been and that there's not as much of an impetus for them uh, to kind of sell out some guys to make it good for others. And so that's going to be a, a real challenge from a negotiation perspective. And I think, you know, it's it's one thing for this conversation to happen publicly, but the, the biggest thing that I think is going to be a challenge for both sides going through this um, is going to be how they have that conversation with the general public. Um, because... At some point next year, there's almost certainly going to be baseball. Um, if there's not baseball, it's a different kind of disaster. But assuming there's going to be baseball at some point next year, uh, the players are going to be the product once again. And so as the owners go through this winter, and this is going to be the topic of my article tomorrow at Shepherd Express, the owners need to be really careful that the way they're talking about the players doesn't detract attention or detract interest from the game itself. Uh, because every time you see the owners come out in one way or another say the players are unreasonable, the players are deluded about all of this, um, it, it really just kind of takes some credibility away from their own product. Uh, and so, you know, the, the future of the game kind of depends upon, the short-term future depends upon their ability to reach an agreement. The long-term future of the game is being written right now, too. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's being written partly in the policies that's going to come out of this, but it's also being written in the narrative they said about each other this way. Yeah, you're right. It's in a, in a way there are some similarities to arbitration hearings where as a team you want to be careful about what you say about this player that basically your job is to go trash to be able to pay them less money. It's a, these things exist in baseball that just don't exist for the most part in other sports. Yeah, and I think, you know, baseball hit kind of a, a dark age after the the 94-95 strike and a lot of it was you know, bitterness over a canceled World Series, and a lot of fan disappointment there. 
But a, a big chunk of it was that the narrative of a lot of folks that winter was just that the players were wholeheartedly wrong. Um, and, and when they came back to play, there were a lot of people who continued to harbor bitterness towards the players. Um, and, and it hurt the product. You know, it, it hurt everybody when people, you know, started to think poorly about the, the guys who were going to be stars on the field. Um, and so, yeah, it, it's unfortunate that this is happening at all. Um, it's extremely unfortunate that it's happening publicly um, because every time they're out there slinging mud trying to get their way this winter, um, they're chipping away a little bit at the, the fandom of the sport um, and, and the livelihood of the people who are around it. It should be noted, and we will repeat this over and over and over, especially if, and we hope this doesn't happen, but especially if this work stoppage does extend to where regular season games are missed, it is worth noting that uh, this will have little to no impact on the minor league clubs, including uh, the Wisconsin Timber Rattlers. Well, it will have no impact on their schedule. I mean, I think it will be hard to say that the game would be unimpacted. Um, in the event of a lockout. But, yes, the, the Timber Rattlers and all the, the various minor league affiliates uh, right now have their full schedule on the table of 2022. Um, and even in the event that there wasn't or there was a delayed Major League Baseball season, yes, but the minor league season would go on. Yeah, and it's just uh, that was something that existed before. And I think that's the good thing, especially you know when you think about Wisconsin right now, you think about the Timber Rattlers, you think about uh, – the, what's the uh, what's the team in Beloit called now? I know they just renamed themselves. I can't think of uh, the name. Sky Carp, right? Yes, the Sky Carp. Uh, uh, you have the you know the independent league teams like the Milkmen. You've obviously got everything that goes on from a summer collegiate uh, wood bat league standpoint. I I do think worst case scenario if there's not major league baseball, there's still a lot of baseball being played in Wisconsin, which is a good thing. And I think you might see also folks like me uh, go full-on nocturnal and become KBO fans again. Oh, uh, in 2020, when there was not MLB baseball, um, I spent an awful lot of time with the Korea Baseball Organization uh, with your friend of mine, David Schultz, uh, watching yes. games at about 4.30 in the morning Central Time. Yeah, that, that, that was always weird for me because I start my work day. Um, work, I work from home during the day, and I start my work day between 5 and 6, and it's always a weird thing when you can turn on the TV at that time in the morning and there be live sports on. Yeah, it, well, it was fantastic because I also, uh, here at home, my wife is up to work you know, before 6.30 most mornings also. Um, and so I'd get up early, and as I'm making breakfast, turn on a KBO game. It was fantastic. I've been, it's become part of my daily routine for about two years now. In fact, I even own a Sungboom Knock NC Dinos jersey. Oh, all right. Very good. Very good. Uh, Kyle, certainly appreciate your time. You mentioned uh, your work at the Shepherd Express, that uh, every single week uh, you continue to uh, push out stories and uh, encourage people to uh, read that at shepherdexpress.com. Of course, uh, head to your Twitter account uh, as well, and they can uh, they can get links to everything uh that you do we appreciate your time and uh, hopefully next time we talk uh happier things to discuss maybe the uh we'll start be we'll start to look at the end of uh this uh labor situation but thank you so much for taking a few moments sounds good i'm looking forward to talking again as we start to build towards a, a season where confident will happen yeah absolutely thanks kyle thank you
Kyle Loebner joining us here on this week's edition of Brewers Extra Innings, the podcast powered by WTMJ Mobile. That is just about going to uh, wrap up this edition of the program. A reminder for you, in addition to uh, this podcast each week, we also continue to bring you uh, Brewers Weekly on Thursday nights at 8 o'clock on WTMJ. When I'm available, I am there to host one of the, uh, I love broadcasting college basketball, which I do a lot of. Uh, the one downfall of me being a college basketball broadcaster is that I broadcast a lot of games that take place on Thursday nights. So when I'm doing Thursday night games, I'm not hosting Brewers Weekly, and I miss hosting Brewers Weekly. I'd like to do it uh, more than I'm able to do during uh, the off season. But whether I'm hosting or not, the show is always there unless there's a, a Bucks game or unless the Packers are playing on a Thursday night or something else is going on. Uh, but we, uh, we tend to be there on Thursday nights. All right, that's going to do it for uh, this week's edition of the podcast. Thanks going out to Kyle Loebner for joining us. Thanks to you for being tuned in. And we will talk to you again next week for another edition of Brewers Extra Innings, the podcast powered by WTMJ Mobile. Thanks for listening to Brewers Extra Innings, the podcast. Matt will be back next week with another episode. For all the latest Brewers news, keep listening to a home of the Brewers. News Radio 620 WTMJ.